everybody. I guess, well, I don't know when you're listening to this, but for us, it's good morning. Welcome to the Tree Planters podcast. Uh, Margaret here with Adam. And today we're joined by a special guest, Franz Hartman. Uh, he's been a longtime environmentalist and now works as the chief engagement organizer uh, for the Small Change Fund. So we're going to start off a little bit about our weeks, what we've each been thinking about learning about some issues that we uh, have been following. And then we'll get into a little bit about uh, Franz and the things that he's working with regarding uh, small environmental not-for-profits and how kind of current circumstances in uh, COVID have been affecting that sector, which includes us. So uh, Adam, I'll throw it to you. What's been going on with you? What are some things you've been thinking about this week? I am watching the city of Barrie in its deliberations on whether to shut down part of the downtown for uh, or to open it up, I should say. I made this point on Twitter a week or two ago with their already existing project on the lakeshore, which they opened up to people. Uh, but all the signs say it's closed. And I, I, my point was that actually it's been opened up to, to more traffic or at least the potential of more traffic with pedestrians and cyclists. Uh, so just freeing up that public space. So the city is... It considering opening up parts of Dunlop, I believe, in the downtown core to pedestrians and to local shops so they can have more space for people to be able to safely physically distance, whether you know they're just walking around or uh, sitting at tables outdoors, uh, patronizing the, the local businesses down there. I think that's a fantastic initiative. I really hope it goes forward. I think it's it's pending approval from the from the BIA, and given the circumstances of uh, COVID, uh, hopefully that'll come through. You know, historically, uh, a lot of BIAs haven't exactly been major supporters of active transportation, which always surprises me. You'd think that anything that would increase foot traffic in front of a business would be something that small business would be in favor of. Uh, so hopefully they'll they'll give the thumbs up to this. The one sort of cause of concern that I have for it is with the reduction in parking spaces that, that'll come with that. I hope that they look at how they can establish some safe lanes for people to be able to access that pedestrianized area. So uh, sort of feeder you know, establishing bike lanes or what have you uh, that will enable people to get into the downtown core safely without having to rely on a vehicle. Uh, so hopefully they'll be considering that. That's the main sort of local story that I've been watching. I was looking at Pembina's uh, recent letter that they came out with around, uh, ah, where is it now? I lost it. Yeah, the, <laughs> the green stimulus. So they came out with a, a pretty interesting uh, principles and recommendations for a 2020 economic stimulus package, which uh, I've been reading through. And it focuses like on green jobs and that sort of thing. Yeah. And making the point that uh, investing now um, at that, you know, a stimulus package, if it's designed with the climate and economic resilience in mind, really represents uh, an opportunity to enhance our prospects for the future really so mm -hmm. and um i'll we'll post the link on the show notes but uh, there's a number of recommendations they come out with and 
they get into the weeds uh, with a number of them in an appendix that's attached. So Franz is in Toronto. Uh, that's where you're located. Anything uh, to add to what Adam was saying? I mean, I know that I saw City Council just expanded its active transport network by 40 kilometers. <laughs> I know that some you're a cyclist. Uh, so anything to add to Adam's points or is there other things that you've been kind of watching lately? Sure. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this. Um, yeah, uh, I was really glad to hear that city council adopted yesterday, uh, that's, uh, the 27th or 28th of, uh, of May, uh, the plan to expand the bike lanes. I think it's actually 25 kilometers, but still it's a huge amount. And it's something that frankly, if someone said to me six months ago, this would happen. I would have said, I wish, you know, that's, that that's wishful thinking. Um, that means, uh, cyclists, uh, uh, will have a lot safer ride in, uh, in many parts of downtown Toronto. And it will also make it a lot easier for people who are trying to practice physical distancing, who, you know, perhaps are a bit fearful of taking the TTC and, you know, don't want to walk on, on what are crowded sidewalks to, uh, to hop on their bikes and get around easier. And of course it's going to be a lot better for our lungs and our general health. Um, the other good thing was like, I live in a, in a downtown Toronto neighborhood and I'm right across from a park and I try every day to kind of walk around uh, the park a couple of times. And I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, I was walking around, you know, doing my best not to, uh, or to maintain physical distance from other people. And I looked around and saw one of my, uh, one of the houses um, in the neighborhood had this uh, cardboard sign, self-made sign that said hashtag green recovery on it. And that really, really heartened me because, <laughs> um, it, you know, this thing happening, you know, it happened spontaneous. It wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, something printed off by an organization. It was just somebody who in the neighborhood who said, you know, if we're going to be doing an economic recovery, let's make sure it's green. And that, that, that really brought a big smile to my face. How about you, Margaret? Mm-hmm. So I've got two things. One's local and and one's uh, Toronto-based. Uh, since we were just talking about Toronto, I'll go with that. The uh, public health unit in Toronto put out a map of kind of where the concentration of cases are mm. by postal code. And um, that should be available, I think, across all Ontario, to be honest. But no surprise to you and I, uh, maybe not to Franz either. I'm not sure how much he dives into this, but there was no correlation with density, which, you know, uh, the mayor of New York keeps going on about density is making it worse. Density is making it worse. It's a very shallow argument. Um, but what was correlated was the uh, overall economic status of those neighborhoods. So it was the ones that are uh, more poor, the ones that are more racialized, um, have less ability to physically distance, uh, more dilapidated housing, that sort of thing. So, you know, when we talk about a green recovery and a just recovery, all that kind of thing, sometimes people say, well, I think society's so used to being self-interested now. And so when I saw that, I said, you know, if we can somehow address the inequities in those neighborhoods, everyone else can, kind of, we can kind of move back to, to normal quicker, if you will. The longer that we push those issues down the road and say it doesn't affect me, we're just lying to ourselves, right? So I thought that data was really important, and I think that in the in the um, interest of equity, in the interest of better health comes, in the interest of transparency, that those kind of maps should be available for all of Ontario, not to uh, prejudice against particular uh, 
neighborhoods, which is what the health board said, like, we don't want you going, not saying like, we're not going to go there. That's not the point, but we can't address the problems until we recognize the data behind it. Um, so that's one of the things that I found interesting. And the other one was more uh, local. I got in a bit of a, an angry rant last night on Facebook for those who follow me because there is this proposal uh, in a township or Medante that is very rural. Um, it's well behind in its ability to maintain its community centers, to maintain its roads. It doesn't really have a large center that uh, people congregate. They all tend to be very small kind of rural communities. And there's this proposal for what they're calling um, seniors home and the developers want to get a ministerial zoning order, which basically says you don't have to worry about any of the studies. You don't have to worry about any of the public inputs, the consultative process, any due process. You're just going to get a rubber stamp and, a, you know, yes, you're approved. And so two things bugged it a bit, bugged that, bugged me about that, I should say. One, why are we, why are we feeling more emboldened to ask for ministerial zoning orders? Is there not some value in the due process? Um, and I think that leads to kind of provincially this idea of red tape being cut. And then two, when you look at the plans, you can see that there's a small portion of seniors homes for sure, but currently it's farmland. And that means more roads expanding into places that it's not supposed to be and I have no issue with seniors homes, of course. I mean, I, I recognize that affordable homes, which uh, or seniors homes, both of those are lacking. But this idea of putting lipstick on a pig of saying, well, we know that it's, you know, out in the middle of farm fields. We know they have to build more roads. We know that we're going to have to build more infrastructure. We know that's not good for our climate. We know that's not good for our environment. We know that takes away our food security, but at least it's for seniors. When you look at to the plans, you see a small portion of seniors. The rest are all single family detached. They're all detached housing. And um, there's nothing in there that has bases for doctor's offices or for um, essential services that could be a little corner store or anything. Like it, it, the curve streets means it's going to be car dependent <laughs> because there's nothing in it. We're now get, putting seniors in a place where they're going to have to be car dependent, which isn't what seniors need to age in place. They need to be able to walk to schools or, or sorry, not walk to schools, but they could if they're going to be doing learning, but walk to hospitals and walk to the corner stores and um, walk to a community center. It's it's this idea of as long as it's going towards the right uh, population and we're using that kind of header. Oh, it's for affordable housing, which I mean, that gets misused all the time or it's for seniors that that allows us to justify, to take farmland and to set up communities that actually aren't intended to really support the people that they're trying to attract. It's, it really bothers me. Um, sorry. I thought my rant was done last night, but obviously it's not. Um, so, so this thing that we have to get over is that land use planning um, needs to be, have more integrity for who they're trying to serve, not try to pretend you're serving one Know that you're not setting the community to properly serve seniors. Know that the majority of the housing is going to single detached family dwellings, uh, make infrastructure deficits worse, on and on and on it goes. So that's my rant. Well, so in the, there's a recent article out in the Globe and Mail also looking at the, the rate of the MZOs that are being give, delivered uh, by this government, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, Franz might uh, has been a part of, uh, we also sit on the Ontario Greenbelt Alliance committee, him and I. So I don't know if you want to chime in Franz with what kind of you're seeing with these MZOs and what that means on a broader scale. Well, it's a terrible precedent. Um, I mean, other governments have used MZOs in the past, so I don't want to pretend that this is the first time they've been used. But uh, using them in the middle of a COVID crisis is, uh, as you said, Margaret, just really, really bad process. Uh, people are focusing on, you know, staying healthy. They're focusing on making sure that they can pay the bills. Uh, they don't have a lot of time and energy to focus on uh, 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 what what governments are doing, what their municipal governments are doing. And for the minister to allow developers essentially to sidestep uh, the municipal processes with these MZOs is just a really, really bad, um, <clears throat> really bad precedent. Um, and they should be used very, very sparingly. And uh, I've looked at uh, at the MZOs that were passed, and with the exception of one dealing with uh, allowing for construction for a hospital here in Toronto, none of the, none of the others passed the smell test of um, you know being urgent and being necessary. I suspect uh, the um, the minister uh, used the MZO power uh, to um, you know probably just to do a favor. Um, and that's, that's an unacceptable way of doing it. Uh, it undermines local democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the connections that was made in that Globe and Mail article as well, is that there's a number of links between proponents receiving these, uh, these orders and, um, donations to the powers that be kind of thing. And, and a lot to that, um, where it becomes potentially really frightening is that if these start become, if they, if this becomes a business as usual way of, of doing things, uh, uh, sooner than later, the MZOs will be used to, uh, to, uh, okay developments that start encroaching either close to, or actually on the green belt. And that's a recipe for, for, uh, to be blunt for disaster, because, uh, if, if one of the many things I think, uh, Ontarians have realized, uh, since the COVID crisis started in mid-March is that our natural infrastructure, which is generally, uh, or much of it is protected through the green belt or is in the green belt and protected through the green belt act. If we start, uh, developing on those areas, uh, we undermine infrastructure that will become, uh, increasingly important, not just in a COVID-19 world, but also as the climate crisis gets worse. So we have to nip this in the bud. We have to stop this. Uh, people, uh, I would suggest people, you know, call their MPPs and say, uh, MZOs should only be used very, very sparingly. And, uh, and, and most of the, uh, instances that were used in the last couple of months were not appropriate. Yeah. Uh, so. For, for listeners who might just be listening uh, to this as a one-off episode, um, we, we talk about this a fair bit, uh, natural, natural infrastructure on other episodes, but maybe if you just uh, want to, sort of in a nutshell, explain what that means. Sure. So uh, natural infrastructure in its simplest form are things like trees and gardens, anything that where, where natural processes are, are doing a whole bunch of ecosystem services, anywhere from, you know, soaking up water to cleaning the air to providing habitat for, uh, for, for insects that, that rely on for pollinating, et cetera. Um, so in downtown Toronto, I'm looking at a whole bunch of natural infrastructure right now, a local park with big trees. Outside of Toronto, in your neck of the woods, natural 
natural infrastructure includes, you know, wild areas. Um, it includes rivers. Uh, these are all really, really important, and they provide a huge number of ecosystem services that, frankly, are priceless. And even when we do put a cost, uh, when when we put a, an economic value to the services, they are huge. Uh, so every time we eat into that natural infrastructure, we are actually undermining um, the ability of natural processes to provide uh, absolutely vital services to human beings and to the all the animals, plants and insects we rely on to survive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing I find that's so funny about governments that are worried uh, or have a preoccupation with finances and money, and that could be at any level, federal, municipal, provincial, is that natural infrastructure does not require any money, like as far as as far as like the wild areas, does not require anything other than our guaranteed protection. That is all, you know. So when we talk about expanding those greenbelt protection to areas in Simcoe County where they're still wild, where there's still cool and cold streams, which by the way is becoming a rarity in Ontario, um, it doesn't cost us anything, folks. It just requires us to put the policies in place to make sure that they're protected. It's not, uh, you know, a $20 million investment. This is, this is the thing that drives me bonkers. So when you're saying Franz about how much economic value they provide for us, it's an asset that somehow, uh, David Crombie, the former mayor of Toronto said to me a long time ago, and it's totally true is that people get used to looking at green space, thinking it's a place that's looking for potential that has potential and looking for a purpose. <laughs> like, that it's just waiting there for us to give it purpose. And frankly, it already has a purpose, but we are looking at purpose as house, road, uh, lights, electricity. That's what purpose and quote unquote progress is. The other stuff is just, just potential, right? Yeah. And, and I think one of the uh, many uh, uh, results of the COVID-19 crisis is that increasingly people are beginning to appreciate things like natural infrastructure, things like the public health system, uh, the all of the frontline workers, uh, anywhere from cleaners to uh, personal uh, support workers, etc. People who in the past we really haven't thought about or our economy and, you know, those who kind of tell us about what's important in the economy have by and large ignored. Now we're realizing what happens when these are threatened. And uh, I, I, I know from talking to people, there is a dramatic increase in appreciation for for all of these. What in the past, you know, one could call hidden services and natural infrastructure is a key one. And I hope one of the consequences that comes out of this, and this is tying it back to the green and just recovery um, conversation, is that uh, governments will now actually begin to value uh, this natural infrastructure, not necessarily economically, but just as a resource, as you said, Margaret, and make sure that there are policies and programs in place to help save and nurture and expand natural infrastructure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I guess that bring, that's a pretty good segue um, to our, the, the real reason why we have you on, although it's wonderful to hear your insights about everything, Franz, is the those places that people are wanting protected, uh, the green spaces in our communities or the expansion of green spaces in our communities is usually left to fairly small 
associations, organizations. Sometimes it's a volunteer-based ratepayers association, but more often than not, it's kind of these smaller, medium-sized environmental not-for-profits that um, do public outreach, they do guided tours, they try to work on policy, uh, you know, SCGC, Adam and I and the board work a lot on trying to educate municipal politicians, educate the public about the natural assets we have here, about how it's a natural solution to climate change, and about how our communities really need to change if we have a, a hope of, of mitigating or adapting to climate change. So uh, you're with the Green Futures, or sorry, with Small Change Fund, and you've kind of got this Green Futures Fund. So first, I, I wonder if this is a good segue, because it's kind of what your uh, whole point is right now, is by making sure that these groups are around past COVID. So I'll throw it over to you to kind of explain what Small Change Fund is, what this Green Futures Fund is, and then we can get more into the weeds of what you're seeing on the ground for these small ENGOs. Sure. Well, let me actually just start by by talking about these small ENGOs, and then that, that'll become, and I'll talk a bit more about the Small Change Fund and the Green Future Fund. Uh, probably, I guess it was in late March, I was part of a, a webinar run by uh, the Toronto Foundation, uh, and uh, it included uh, executive directors of frontline uh, NGOs, uh, organizations, for example, or executive directors of organizations dealing with homeless people, with uh, uh, women fleeing domestic uh, uh, abuse, um, uh, people dealing with uh, other frontline services. And we got a real insight into the challenges they were facing. And uh, one of the biggest ones was they would be working 18 hour days and then they would have to come home and they would have to confront the fact that their loved ones potentially could be exposed to COVID-19. It's just, you know, they, they never escaped the, uh, the, the COVID reality. Um, and I remember thinking after that, that webinar, oh my goodness, I am so glad I'm not doing that job right now because I couldn't take it. And then it struck me that a lot of my uh, colleagues and friends, people in small to medium-sized ENGOs, would also be really stressed out because we're now living in a time where people are focusing rightly so on their on, on maintaining their health, their physical health, and they're worrying about their economic health. And how if you're if you're an uh, angle leader, how do you get your issues uh, onto the public radar? Um, and uh, I thought that is not an easy job to uh, to have right now, uh, because I know that funders were, were 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 pulling funds, projects that required uh, a lot of community engagement, a lot of physical connections uh, were pu being pulled, and it made me realize a lot of uh, the small to medium sized angle leaders that I knew. Uh, had to essentially throw out the old playbook on how you do community engagement and how you run an organization and create a new one. And I've been at this long enough, uh, Margaret, that I know that the best way to learn is by bringing a bunch of people together and creating a space for them to learn from each other. So that became the idea for, for developing the Green Future Fund. Uh, and there's a website now, greenfuturefund.ca, uh, which tells you, you know, uh, what we're really about. But essentially what we do is, A, we, we create a space for environmental leaders to get together on a, every two weeks to just exchange information. Uh, B, we've created a fundraising platform that people can donate to if they want to help uh, small to medium-sized angles. And C, it's also a place where there are a whole bunch of resources and uh, 
And what we've done is we have gone through the ever mounting uh, a number of resources that are out there for NGO leaders. And we've picked, we've curated the ones that are most applicable to uh, small to medium sized dangos. And we've put them on the website. Uh, but really, this is a space for, for leaders of small to medium sized groups to get together and learn and help each other and navigate through the COVID crisis. And the reason that's so important is, first of all, small to medium sized groups generally do not have the resources that larger environmental groups have. Uh, a larger group that has 40 or 50 staff, if it has to cut its staff in half, you know, that's going to hurt, but it's not the end of the world. If you're in a small angle with three or four staff and you have to cut the staff in half, you're almost gone. Um, and a small Engo doesn't have the capacity, the resources, an HR department, um, a, a communications department. It's probably people like um, like you and Adam who are you know trying to make do with very little. <laughs> um, so uh -huh. we created this space. And right now we've got, I think, 15 organizations, most in Ontario, but we've got some in, in uh, New Brunswick who are, are participating and, and helping each other. And uh, because I'm kind of helping make it happen, I, 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 I'm at a very particular uh, vantage point. I think it's working. I, I get positive feedback from people all the time. Um, but it's it's uh, it's it's really nice to be able to help uh, people. And I will say one more thing and then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you for a moment. Um, why this is so important is that, as, as you were suggesting before, Margaret, the small to medium sized angles are the true backbone of the environmental movement in Canada. Um, uh, groups like yours, uh, the groups, other groups that are part of this initiative. They're in the communities. They have a pulse on what's going on. They're paying attention to to the local issues, just like you, Margaret. You know who were who uh, were you know earlier. You would call it ranting. I would say quite rightly getting upset about the MZOs that are being used. Uh, you're the eyes and ears of what's happening in the community. And if you're not there organizing, if you're not there passing information on, bad things happen. So the uh, to ensure that the future of, of the small to medium sized groups is, is secured is absolutely vital to ensuring that there is a green future. And finally, I think the small to medium sized groups are also going to be the ones that are going to create the community support for a green and just uh, economic recovery. Um, it's not going to happen with the big groups. It's going to happen because people like you and Adam are out there talking to local thought leaders, uh, uh, local influencers and in getting the word out. Just to uh, clarify, you uh, Engos. Environmental non-governmental organizations. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that acronym <laughs> alert. And I'll also say just a few things about the Small Change Fund. Uh, the Small Change Fund uh, was Canada's first crowdsourcing platform. Uh, it's been around for uh, for uh, over 12 years, and it's really uh, 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 it's it's a charity. And our primary goal is to help um, uh, change makers succeed. Uh, so we provide a variety of services, anywhere from you know advice on communications, on government relations, on on governance of an organization, on how to uh, how to how to engage communities, how to engage policymakers, fundraising. It's really a, a, an organization there to help groups uh, uh, succeed. And uh, we're we're very small. Uh, we're working on a volunteer basis. 
but we find this work extremely fulfilling and really look forward to helping uh, 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 change makers across Canada um, just become much more effective and to amplify their work. So there's a, would, would you say that there's kind of two audiences perhaps that could be listening to this and would find it uh, so uh, you know, people that are directly involved with small and uh, medium-sized angles, and then um, somebody out there who isn't necessarily, but who's interested in supporting them. Well, yeah, and for for the latter, um, if you don't know uh, uh, any uh, of any local groups uh, like uh, uh, like your group that's uh, that's doing work, then you know, uh, go to the greenfuturefund.ca website and you'll get a list of organizations that we're working with. Um, if you do know of, of the organization uh, in your community that's doing this sort of work, just call them or contact them, find out how you can donate. Um, it's really, really important that they provide or they get the support they need. Uh, there has been a, a, a significant drop in funding, as I said earlier, Many of these small groups rely on grants from foundations and governments to do their work. Many of much of the work that they were planning on doing was community outreach, where you're literally going and talking to people. You are you can't practice physical distance in that sort of outreach. And so a lot of the funds that were set aside for this have dried up. And that has created a uh, financial uh, challenge for many, um, uh, many small uh, groups. So anything you can do, you know, if you uh, if, if you don't know who um, who in your uh, local area does this sort of work, um, you know, go to the greenfuturefund.ca website and contact us, uh, leave us and send us an email um, and uh, tell us where you live. And uh, we'll do uh, we'll do some research and get back to you with some suggestions for groups that you can support. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the one of the things that we've talked about a little bit more recently is the role that sort of the nonprofit sector and goes and, uh, you know, community organizations and uh, faith based groups, church groups, what have you uh, play. And it's often I think it's 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 coming into sort of sharp relief for us, I think, through our conversations specifically around enhancing resilience in communities and the role that these types of organizations are able to play in doing exactly what you what, what you talked about, sort of uh, these communication roles that they have with their constituencies, with their communities, uh, with engaging them. Um, could you like maybe talk a little bit more about that role, how you see that role going forward, whether and how that will change in the future? Sure. Yeah. And that's that's a really important insight, Adam. Um, uh, I've had the luxury over the last year, year and a half to kind of do some research into uh, into the uh, emerging importance of uh, what I call community networks. Um, these networks can be uh, connected through social media, through Facebook, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other social media platforms. There are also networks, you know, that go through that come through, you know, faith based organizations, any type of community organization. And if you think that, well, I can think back, maybe you two can't, but I think back 30 years ago, uh, most knowledge creation, if you looked for, um, if, if you wanted to find out whether or not something was true, you would usually turn to uh, what we now call traditional media, you know, the local newspaper, um, you know, uh, national, national media sources, 
you turn to Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, and if, if you did, if you knew someone, you turn to uh, somebody who, who, you know, was associated with the university and you'd kind of say, OK, these are the these are the people who I'm going to turn to to help me decide whether or not something is true or help me decide where to find information that I need. Today, with the Internet, with social media, with our ability to interconnect in ways that, you know, even 15 years ago, we would never imagine. We now increasingly rely on community networks. Very simply, if I need to get a roof repaired, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to send an email out to my local circle of friends and say, hey, anybody have a good roofer or anybody have experience with a good roofer? I'm relying on these community networks to help me gather information. And also when I hear things online or when I see things online, if somebody, you know, sends something around on Facebook or whatever, and I, and I, you know, I'm not sure whether or not it's truthful or not. Again, I rely on my community networks increasingly. And I think that's happening across, um, across much of the Western world. And so these networks are really, really, really important. Uh, they're important for 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 passing information along and also as bases where uh, information that is out there gets uh, gets evaluated. And so this is why I think it's important for all of us to become aware of what's going on in this this uh, these networks and also to become participants in these networks and to make sure that the information that's coming into the networks is is as valid as evidence based as possible. And that's why the work that you and Margaret are doing is so important, because you, you two of you and probably your network um, are out there scouring for the facts. They're scouring for the right information and making sure that that information uh, is, is made available to your networks. Um, that's how we're going to build a, a greener and more just world is by is by engaging people through these networks and making sure that the information they get is factually correct. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I, I, I think about with this is uh, how enhancing that resilience in, in communities that has a lot to do with um, like, you know, it's weaving, you know, weaving together the fabric of these communities in different ways. And, it's, and looking at these organizations as another element, another part of, of that whole, you know, so that traditionally it's sort of been government or municipal government or what have you who sort of have their departments that, that deal with this or this other department that deals with that. But Margaret and I have been talking about this uh, more frequently lately, how, especially now with the constrained resources that a lot of local governments have and certainly will have going forward, how they can start to look at these different organizations, different entities within their communities as performing uh, these kinds of roles in, in uh, dialoguing. Uh, that's not, is that a word? I don't think that's a word. <laughs> in, <laughs> <laughs> it's a word now. In communicating with, 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 uh, you know, with the community and, and, and weaving together those, those relationships as yours. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and oh, sorry, go ahead, Margaret. No, I was just going to say that, you know, if you, if you look at, uh, it, there seems to be like Adam was saying, the siloing that a government has to operate on its own, that it has its function to serve people, if you will. And then that's just, it's, it's very transactional and a top down. And Adam and I kind of are amazed sometimes when, you know, municipalities do their best to uh, interact and get feedback and they do all of these, you know, public outreach meetings and whatnot. But as you were saying, Franz, is that information is shared within your network and how many people 
use the municipality as their network or source of information, right? There's, there's not, not that there's a lot of distrust, but it's just not a natural kind of like, oh, if I want to know, I'm going to check on my municipality's website, unless it's about garbage pickup or, or when the community center is open, they're not looking to that source to verify what they're experiencing in the community. So we're always thinking like, you guys, you know, could probably do a better job of outreach, but actually it would be better is to use groups that are already existing that have a network in the community to help you spread your message, to help you get the engagement that we do because there is that trusted kind of, of relationship there. And yet it's, it's so, so that all could, could go back into weaving that resilience. It doesn't have to be the public versus the government. It could be the public with the government, with its community organizations that are kind of working towards the same role. But that would also mean that local governments would have to take this idea that they are the final decision makers, the grand pumbas of all the information that is ever known, and be more open to the idea that the network can feed into their decisions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, a, in a past life, I used to work for a city councillor here in Toronto for uh, four and a half years, and I was his environmental advisor. And uh, I got a real insight into how City Hall works in Toronto. And of course, Toronto is, is, you know, just one city and how City Hall works in your neck of the woods is a bit different. But there are a lot of similarities. And I think one of the things that I learned from my time there is that um, an effective municipal government is one that truly engages and relies on and leverages the community networks that are out there. Uh, too often what happens is that municipal governments who have been um, underfunded uh, for 20, 25 years, they, t- to be blunt, they don't get enough money. They don't get enough money from the provincial and federal governments. And, they, and in, in the case of Toronto, they don't raise enough uh, uh, taxes uh, to, to provide the services that, that should be provided. What they often do is they, they rely on other stakeholders for information and for understandings of how things work. And more often than not, those stakeholders are special interests. They're the development industry. They're they're, uh, businesses with very deep pockets that can hire on um, uh, uh, lobbyists to kind of feed them information. I mean, I saw this all the time in City Hall in Toronto, and I know that things haven't changed much. Uh, I think increasingly municipal governments, especially because of the COVID uh, crisis, are realizing there is another source out there. And this is a source you were talking about, Margaret and uh, Adam, you were referring to. You know, there is a very vibrant uh, civil society network of of organizations, of individuals that has a huge amount of knowledge, that has access to a huge amount of uh, of people. And this network can be better utilized to both collect information and get information out there. And I think that, as you rightly said, Margaret, what the mindset needs to shift away from hierarchy and towards um, uh, better networking and integration and utilization. And if municipal governments do that, and frankly, it's also going to be a lot cheaper for them than if they rely on these special interest stakeholders. If they if they go in that direction, it will make for a much more vibrant and a much more resilient uh, community. So uh, that being said, that will only happen because people demand it. And uh, if people don't demand it, governments will uh, will uh, continue relying on special interests and lobbyists for information. We uh, we need to tell our municipal leaders 
hey, we have access to information, we have access to community knowledge, and we want you to start paying attention to it uh, as you make decisions, uh, especially decisions about planning and things that are going to have an impact in our daily lives. Mm. I think uh, Margaret's going to do uh, five, five quick questions uh, in, in just a minute. I just wanted to uh, say real quickly, though, there is a, a webinar recently with Strong Towns, and they're talking about how local governments can respond effectively to this crisis. And one of the key recommendations they had was reorient the organizational model from that hierarchical vertical model to more of a horizontal model. And the point that they made is uh, municipal governments essentially are modeled off of a, a military structure, largely sort of coming out of the uh, Second World War. This is an American organization. There's a lot of overlap with Canada that they, that they have with their membership. But I think that that's a real real worthwhile recommendation sort of looking at how you can spread out more. Margaret, you want to do those, do those questions? Yes, I will. But you know me, I can't okay. just get right to the point. So before I, I hound uh, Franz with these questions, uh, I wanted you to just touch on what Franz was saying and how we're working with groups across the County to be providing those inputs and demanding municipalities of what a green and just recovery would look like here. And, um, you know, a little bit of a shameless plug. This is important work um, to to make sure that the recovery locally and, and more broadly is is green and just. And so we are a part of the Green Futures Fund. Um, it, it, they provide charitable receipts. And uh, so you can either donate test on our website, simcoekindofgreenbelt.ca, or go to Green Futures Fund um, and do that. So these kind of things don't just happen magically. They require time and effort and funds, unfortunately. It, um, so anyways, all that being said, last podcast, Franz, this is, you're the very first, you're going to run the gauntlet first. Um, last podcast, I was like, we need to have like, like a buzzer beater questions. And so that was my task. Now I had to come up with the questions and we have not shared them with you. We're trying to keep this authentic. Um, so I'm going to ask you five questions, no time limit, but try to keep it brief if you can. And uh, then we'll wrap up. Uh, your first question, what is your go-to order at your favorite local restaurant? Oh, uh, well, during COVID-19, it's pizza from a local pizza shop. Uh, I love pizza. And of course, the beauty of pizza is that uh, there's always leftovers. Um, so then you put it in the freezer and lots there. During non-COVID-19 uh, times, uh, we have a, a, a local uh, Middle Eastern place that does really great shawarma plates and uh, falafels. And I love going there. Um, but uh, I'm a bit wary about doing it now because there's a lot of preparation involved for doing that. And I'm just being really, really conscious about minimizing uh, potential exposure. Pizza you can put in the oven and bake for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've never ordered pizza and put it in the freezer. So that's interesting to me. That's a, that's a new a new twist. Um, OK, what do you wish you had known when you started out? So, sorry, I'm going to ask for clarification. Started out what? <laughs> Where? When? <laughs> that's that's up to you. Uh, OK, that's up to you. This is open ended. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to wimp out a bit and say, um, you know, I've, I've, I've often done the mental experiment. If I knew, you know, 30 years ago, what I know today, um, uh, the, the reality is I didn't. And the reality is you can never do that. And so I'm going to wimp out and answer it by this. I think we need to 
not be afraid to make mistakes and not be afraid to experiment. Um, you know, that's how we learn. If uh, uh, I had a, a very wise thing said to me by a much younger person um, uh, uh, about uh, four months ago uh, during a, uh, uh, a seminar I was, I was participating in, it was actually a conversation and it was a, a teacher, an indigenous person. And she noted that, um, you know, she had learned as a teacher that you uh, people only learn something when they're ready to learn it. And if they're not ready to learn it, it doesn't matter how often you say something, it's just not going to stay with you. And I think similarly, uh, most of the things that I now know, I know because I was ready to learn them. And if I could somehow or another magically go back 30 years and tell myself that I would probably that that earlier self would ignore it because I wouldn't be ready to learn it. So bottom line, be uh, experiment embrace mistakes, and most importantly, have fun. Okay. Well, I'm going to get you now giving me some ammunition because my husband always will say to me, you should do it like this. You should do it like this. And then I don't listen. And then finally someone else says, and I'm like, Hey, do you know what I should do? And he's like, I've told you that 10 times. So I'll just say to him now, I wasn't ready to learn it when you told me now I'm ready to learn. Um, number Absolutely. three, what are you curious about? What are you curious about right now? Um, well, not this moment, but in the last uh, year, I've been really curious about the human brain. Um, I've been a, an environmental activist for 30 plus years, and I've spent a lot of time understanding, you know, how governments work, how the economy works. I've understood how, you know, how to run environmental organizations. I did that for a number of years. And um, like both of you, I'm really in the business of trying to convince people to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. And about a year and a half, two years ago, I realized the biggest, um, uh, uh, I don't want to say, uh, or the, the most important thing that we have to uh, uh, focus on is actually our brains, because our brains are the ones that that assimilate information. Our brains are the things that take in information and decide what's relevant and so on and so forth. And I hadn't, I had done almost no investigation into how the human brain works. I had my understanding about how the human brain works was based on completely erroneous information. Um, so I am really interested in the human brain, how we process information, why, you know, why we take some facts in and, and ignore other ones. So I continue being fascinated by that. And I'm going to be learning about that probably for the rest of my life. I, 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 uh, I hear a follow up podcast. What's cool. uh, <laughs> the I'm, yes, I was I'm pretty fascinated by that stuff too. I've been, uh, one of the guys I like uh, reading a lot on that uh, topic is George Lakoff. Exactly. Yeah. I was, I was going to throw that to you, Adam saying this sounds like Adam's, you know, routine kind of lectures about George Lakoff with me when we do our <laughs> status meetings. He's like, well, George Lakoff. Da, 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 da. Um, yeah. So maybe a follow up uh, about that. Uh, do you have a go-to podcast Number four, this is going to show my age. I, I've, I haven't really embraced podcasts, namely because I'm just a I'm addicted to CBC Radio One. Um, we've got about five radios in this house and every one of them is tuned to CBC Radio One. And I, you know, we it, it comes on in the morning on our clock radio. Uh, we listen to it while we're, you know, uh, having breakfast um, uh, we listen to it, uh, during supper time as we're cooking. 
Um, you know, as I'm brushing my teeth to go to bed, I've got CBC Radio 1 on. So I listen to shows uh, on a regular basis, and uh, that's my equivalent of a podcast. That being said, my daughter introduced me to a podcast uh, just last week when I was moving her back to Ottawa. And I don't know the title of it, but it's uh, something to do with fish. And it's out of the UK. And it involves three people. And uh, each each week, they they identify an interesting fact that they picked up and they organize a podcast around that. And I thought that was, uh, that was a lot of fun, but I don't know the name of it. So a slight modification to the question, uh, favorite CBC radio one show. <laughs> um, oh my, um, uh, for, uh, 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 I'll, I'll have to say the current, um, because I'm, I'm a big Matt Galloway fan and, uh, he's just an incredible interviewer and he's also uh, really good at getting, um, information out of people and, uh, also doing it in a way that isn't simply, you know, uh, being obsequious, you know, he, he asks tough questions and he gets really, really good responses. So far you've passed the, uh, buzzer beater. We got the last question here. Uh, do you have, well, you, I shouldn't say do, because I actually want you to answer this, uh, not with, not wimp out like you did on the other ones, uh, a piece of advice that you would give for when people are feeling discouraged, because that happens in this field. It happens when you care, right? You get those days when you feel discouraged and this is never going to change. And, you know, you must have something that you've learned. Yeah. And in fact, I'll, I'll, if you indulge me, I'll tell a short story. Back in 1991 or 92, I was a, a brand new PhD student uh, here in Toronto. And we had a summer school and the guest lecture was uh, an amazing um, uh, ecologist named Vandana Shiva out of uh, in, uh, India. And uh, for a week and a half, we heard from her and she would talk about how um, amongst other things, uh, rural Indian women organized. I mean, these are people who were extraordinarily um, poor. Uh, they organized around, uh, to stop large multinational companies from coming in and devastating their communities. And Vandana Shiva told story after story how they just persisted and with nothing um, achieved huge uh, positive outcomes. That to me has always inspired me. And whenever I get to a point where I go, oh, woe is me, or oh my goodness, how difficult things are. I think back to those stories that Vandana Shiva told us and said, if people who have almost nothing can find a way of, of stopping some of the most powerful forces out there, surely we can. And that has, that, that always provides me with hope. And I, uh, and, and I think that, you know, that's, that's the most important lesson is people do extraordinary things with very little. We're seeing that all the time right now in, in the COVID uh, pandemic and let that inspire you. And, uh, and the bottom line is have fun in the process, because when you have fun doing neat activism, amazing things happen. Absolutely. Yep. Do you want to, um, before we wrap up, do you want to give some, uh, sources, places where people can, uh, find you online? Uh, sure. Yeah. If people want to contact me, just go to the smallchangefund.ca website, um, go to the about us section and you'll uh, see my, my picture and name there and my email address. Um, so if you want to reach out, that would be great. Love to hear from you. 
Great. And as usual, uh, you can find Margaret and I at simcoecountygreenbelt.ca or uh, you can throw our names in front of that uh, domain, Adam at simcoecountygreenbelt.ca or Margaret at simcoecountygreenbelt.ca or email. And uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram every once in a while. Also, simcoecountygreenbelt.ca. Yeah. Sporadically. I may say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not feeling social media lately, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, it's the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us, Franz. Uh, you want to do closing? Yeah. Well, I thought I just did. Yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry. No formal thing? Okay, whatever. <laughs> We're so professional. Well, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, well, Mar- Mar- Margaret sort of touched on it earlier, uh, but uh, we, we do really rely on support from... from uh, people like you. So if you like what you hear with these podcasts or you like the other work that we do, um, you can find a way to donate to us on our website. And of course, also head on over to uh, Green Futures Fund. The URL was greenfuturefund.ca. That's right. And the small change fund is smallchangefund.ca. And there you can also find a number of other deserving organizations you can support. So it certainly doesn't have to be us, although we'd like that. But please consider heading on over to those URLs <laughs> and, uh, you know, recognizing that, that, uh, th- this is work that, uh, otherwise wouldn't be done. So, um, one recent example is the suspension of the public input with the environmental registry of Ontario. Uh, you know, the, the people that are sort of now watching this, uh, performing that role are the small, medium, the large, uh, larger environmental organizations out there. So, uh, the role that I'm talking about is keeping a watch on what is happening in the public commons, which is yours. And that, you know, that's what the environmental registry is meant to be for is so that you can provide that input on projects that are going to impact these spaces that you have a right to have healthy, to have accessible and to have there for the future. And with that suspension, that role is now being performed by, by these small organizations. So it's definitely worthy work to support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Franz. And I would, <laughs> thank you. I would really like to do a follow yes, up you, on, on the, on the lake off stuff. I think that's super fascinating. Uh, yeah. I think it'd be a great, great episode. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll, I'll, uh, uh, all the listeners, please support the Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition. Uh, Adam and Margaret do absolutely amazing work and they deserve as much support as you can give them. Thank you. Thanks so much for that. Uh, thanks, friends. Okay. So we'll, we'll see you next all right. week. Have a great day, yep. everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>